I'm Kate Daniels. Oh, life can feel so crazy, so overwhelming at times. And then we think about our kids, our youth, and just the major challenges that they're now living with, concerned about going to school and what might happen that day. While this isn't the answer, this guest, Dr. Michael Skaringa, an award-winning research psychiatrist, has some important insights. Dr. Skaringa has a new book where we can find many stories of his research, and he joins us now to share some insights into They'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to PTSD in Youth. Dr. Michael Skaringa, good morning and many thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I feel very privileged to have this opportunity because uh, holding in my hands this book, They'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to PTSD in Youth, just feels like such a critically important book. Uh, It says Parent's Guide, but of course, we want to make it known, I think, right up front that it's not just parents. It's for anyone that has uh, involvement, works with children, right? Right. Yeah, it's geared towards parents uh, primarily, but it's also written with a lot of the research explained for people in ways that are understandable. So trainees, uh, students who are just learning this field, it would be very important for them. I think it could also be relevant for adults who experienced trauma when they were children and are still trying to process uh, what they've gone through. So thinking about that, it's very possible that there's been not a real understanding of what went on, that this could bring the important insights that could help in their healing. Right. So much of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, goes unrecognized uh, for so long. One of the main points in the book that I make is that there's been good research that shows that even licensed clinicians miss the diagnosis of PTSD 90% of the time for various reasons. And it's unfortunate because people are not getting uh, recognition for what's going on with them and getting to the right kinds of treatment. And one of the things, and I'd like to touch on why it goes undiagnosed, but thinking about perhaps older people reading this book and, and then identifying it in themselves has a lot to do, and this really shocked me, in terms of when PTSD was actually recognized as a condition. It was first recognized officially in 1980 in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and that was around the Vietnam veterans who were coming home from combat and experiencing lots of problems. And so it was first recognized in adults, and that's, we usually, you know, think about PTSD in terms of combat veterans, so it's, it's also kind of unusual for people to think of PTSD in children. And that's where you, uh, well, we'll call it make the leap to the fact that it doesn't, it isn't just combat situations, which we appreciate are, are hugely traumatic, but trauma is the key word, isn't it? It is. The, the kinds of traumas that we're talking about that can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder are what we call life-threatening events. They're usually sudden, unexpected moments of sheer panic for your life. So for children, these can be things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, motor vehicle accidents, other kinds of injuries like burns or near drowning, uh, natural disasters, man-made disasters. And then, of course, now we have things like school shootings. 
And actually, school shootings was the thing that came to mind when I first uh, saw this book and the opportunity for us to have the conversation. And so, of course, it's at such a crazy scale that these are happening. I think that the book is coming at a time when so many parents and teachers and therapists and and that whole field of professionals will certainly want to embrace this and learn that much more. Right. Parents are going to want to try to understand what their children have gone through and how they're responding after these kinds of school shootings. So they, they know how to help their children the best. If your children was in a school shooting and saw life-threatening things like saw a shooter, saw a body, saw somebody get shot, or, or just you were hiding and feared for your own life, those could all be things that might lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. And what about seeing it on the news, it's across the country, or it's, you know, a state, uh, two states over, uh, or it may be in, uh, in the same city. Children who weren't at that site, would they still be considered to potentially have uh, PTSD? Seeing it on TV, if you didn't know somebody who was in the event, is unlikely to cause PTSD because there wasn't a loved one that you felt panic for in the event. And that's, you were alluding to the kind of the difference between trauma and non-trauma. You know, there's there's lots of other things that happen in life that we'll call stress that aren't necessarily trauma. And stressful events, things like watching violence on TV, parents getting divorced, moving to a new school, typically do not cause PTSD. I mean, they did a, you know, everybody who's old enough can remember when the Space Shutter Challenger exploded live on TV, and there were children all across the country watching this on television, and they studied a lot of those children. Uh, One researcher did and found that they generally did not develop PTSD, probably because they didn't, you know, know people who were on board. So it's important to draw that distinction so that if um, a, if students are feeling that because they've seen so many of these shootings go on, if if they are feeling uh, anxious about going to school, it's still not PTSD. It's it could be just the stress a stress disorder or anxiety disorder. Could be. We could call it an adjustment disorder, uh, like a temporary reaction like that. And it's still important to address. And uh, like I, I posted a a blog. Uh, lately about tips for children, uh, tips for parents on how to talk to their children after events like this, even if they don't have PTSD, because uh, the, the children do need a way to process that and talk about that with people. And you mentioned in your blog, let's give that website so that people can access that in addition to having the book so that they can get just the latest up-to-date information. Right. It's on the psychologytoday.com website, and if you just Google psychologytoday.com and my last name, spelled S-C-H-E-E-R-I-N-G-A, it will lead you to it, and it's called 16 Tips for Parents to Talk to Their Children After School Shootings. Great. I think, again, that's going to be valuable information for 
teachers as well, of course, and uh, anyone associated in working with children. A great resource. The book, They'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to PTSD in Youth. We've touched on why it's important to have this, but what was it that finally was the impetus for you to you know, put all this together and make the book available publicly? Well, I'm, I've been a child psychiatrist uh, at Tulane University in New Orleans for over 20 years, and I've been writing professional articles for my professional colleagues and giving presentations at professional conferences and doing workshops, and there was a lot of important information that needed to be disseminated. Uh, there was misinformation that's being spread that needed to be corrected, and I was just unsatisfied with the pace at which the information was getting from professionals like me to families, the ones, the consumers who really need it. And that's for various reasons with the way information gets processed uh, in specialties. So I decided I'm just going to write a book and go straight to the parents and get the information straight into their hands. And how wonderful, really. What a gift for us that you decided to just really be this assertive or proactive on the behalf of parents, because certainly uh, parents are seeking knowledge, uh, wanting to help their kids. But also, I think what happens in reading, they'll never be the same, is realizing that sometimes, uh, even as parents who are deeply concerned, it, it, we can miss those cues and, and not understand what's going on. So it can be as subtle as that, can't it? It can. Uh, and, you know, let's talk a little bit about why it can be so hard to recognize PTSD. Like I said, that, you know, 90% of the time, even licensed clinicians miss it, you know, and we, we have veterans from World War II who've had it for 40 years and may still not know that's what they have. But there's, I think, three main reasons why it gets missed. <clears throat> one is the avoidance issue. Avoidance is actually one of the symptoms of PTSD. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to have to think about these painful memories. So they're not going to bring these things up voluntarily, and they, they try to hide them in the back of their mind. A second reason is that a lot of the PTSD symptoms are what we call internalized. They're thoughts and feelings that go on inside a person's brain, and you can't see them on the outside. You know, if you have a child who has, like, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you can see the hyperactivity on the outside. But, you know, I've seen hundreds of youths with PTSD, and I can't tell who has it just by looking at them because those, those kinds of symptoms are internalized. And then... The third reason probably is there's 20 different symptoms of PTSD in the official diagnostic criteria. And there's lots of different ways those symptoms can combine for someone to have the full di diagnosis. In fact, one researcher counted up the number of different ways that those 20 symptoms could combine and you could still be diagnosed with PTSD, and it was over 600,000 different ways. Goodness. But those 20 uh, symptoms do need to be present to be like this official diagnosis? That's kind of the complicated thing. You don't need all 20. You only need six out of the 20, but they need to be in a certain algorithm. Like there's, we divide the 20 into three main types of symptoms. One is called the re-experiencing type. Those are things like nightmares 
and intrusive thoughts of the trauma that barge into your mind that you don't want. The second type are what we call avoidance and numbing types of symptoms. Children will lose interest in things that they used to like to do. They will withdraw from their loved ones. And then the third type we call the increased arousal symptoms, like difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, or exaggerated startle response. And you need one or more symptom from each of those three types of symptoms. So you can see there's, there's lots of different ways those 20 symptoms could combine, and, and you just need six of them. So again, the reason to be this much more informed to be educated on the subject because in terms of, uh, well, just thinking of how prevalent it would be, is there a way to look at it that way? How, um, I guess the question is whether parents need to be hyper-concerned about whether their child might be experiencing this, or is it going to be more of an awareness uh, of some traumatic situation that you know has been going on. Well, that is actually one of the big messages of the book, is what I'm saying is parents need to be involved. You can call it hyper-concerned, but because clinicians are missing the diagnosis and PTSD is hard to detect, the message is for parents, it is up to you. You have to be watching. Now, if you see any change in your child immediately after on a life-threatening event, you should have a high suspicion of PTSD. PTSD is the only psychiatric diagnosis, just about, that has a sudden onset where one day you didn't have it and the next day you do. So it, you should be suspicious and then look for those specific symptoms. And parents can download a free questionnaire about PTSD symptoms, like a checklist, and they can fill it out themselves about their children. And if their child is old enough, you know, say 10 years or older, some children can fill it out themselves. You know, usually professionals say, oh, we don't want people self-diagnosing. But what I'm saying is, yes, I want people self-diagnosing because they have to, they have to be in the game to help detect this. Well, that would be the first step to self-diagnose to at least say, oh, goodness, it seems like I have these symptoms, or a parent says, yes, it looks like this is the case, so you can go find the professional to work with you. Right, right. Self, self-assessment is just the first step. Once you think, have a suspicion of what's going on, then, then you need to find a good professional, and that's, that's another difficulty for parents. Because there's still... Uh, aren't sufficiently trained, um, uh, let's see, professionals who would work with children? Is that part of the issue? That is part of the issue. Um, it, it takes special training to be able to work with traumatized children. We have what are called evidence-based treatments with, with psychotherapies that have been tested rigorously in randomized trials. And there's research that shows that most clinicians don't use evidence-based treatments for a variety of reasons. And parents should be looking for people. And when you go to a therapist, it's okay to ask that kind of tough question of a therapist. Have you seen a child like mine before? How many children have you treated with PTSD? What kind of psychotherapy do you use? Do you use evidence-based treatment? The most well-studied one is called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT and ask them to explain what CBT is to you. Now, there's other ones besides CBT, but CBT is just the most um, well-studied of 
of all of. And it's tough. I mean, I'll admit it. I can say it about my own profession. It's tough for parents to find good help. I, I say you have more quality information about the shingles on your roof and the cereal on your breakfast table than you have about mental health clinicians because we just don't make it transparent for parents to, to shop for us and know who's good and who's not. And added to this, because uh, we've had such a stigma around mental illness all these decades and well, it feels like millennia, but it's it's been a stigma. Does this also somehow impact PTSD and how children are treated? Yeah, I think that stigma is another part of it. Um, people still think of mental illness as rare and uncommon, and if you have it, that makes you, um, you know, extremely um, unusual. When in fact, um, most people have some type of what we would call mental illness. You know, anxiety, panic disorder, depression. You know, throughout their lifetime, it's it's more normal than it is abnormal. And until people recognize that, it's it's hard for them to seek help. So you share stories uh, about uh, patients. Of course, it's not, um, or stories in general, not necessarily people that you're working with. But so we get a sense of the kinds of different situations that go on. Of course, I you talk about being uh, from. Louisiana and right near where just so many disasters have occurred. It, talking about Katrina and the results for children uh, comes up in the book. And it's something that maybe in the past when there was a, a devastating hurricane, we kind of f- just figured people would get over it. They'd get on with their life. But what what kinds of things did you find as a result of that with children? Yeah, one of the stories in the book is about a a young girl who lived through Hurricane Katrina. Her house was flooded. They had to spend uh, two terrifying nights in their attic and see dead bodies. And and she went seven years without her PTSD being recognized until she finally got to our clinic and we recognized it. And during that seven years when she wasn't being uh, treated, she was terrified of water she refused to take showers. Heavy rains, uh, frankly, made her panic. So she's she went for all those seven years kind of living in terror of, of water and weather events because um, these things weren't being recognized and treated. And so in, in terms of that, would her parents have uh, just thought that they were biding their time, she's going to eventually grow out of this? That's, I think, what a lot of parents think. You know, we, we all have experiences in our lives like getting bruises or, or public speaking that we have bad memories of, but those things fade with time. And so we're used to thinking of, you know, bad memories are just going to go away with time. And that's the message in the book. You know, that's kind of the title, They'll Never Be the Same. I, I put never in the title on purpose because <laughs> the research shows that um, if you have PTSD symptoms, they're pretty much with you to some degree, uh, your whole life, uh, even with treatment and things getting better, they, they never really go away. And it's, it's kind of like learning to live with the new normal. And so something, just using the, this young girl as an example, and totally understandable, I 
I mean, I cannot even fathom having to live through what she did. But being fearful of storms and water and probably never going to to swim again in her life, would that be something that she would just uh, be able to kind of distance herself from, especially with storms, to say, use a a method of, uh, say, meditation or positive reinforcement uh, phrases in her mind? Right. Coping things like that can help people uh, function better, even with their their worries. Um, they can teach them new coping skills, maybe like meditation, could be uh, muscle relaxation, it could be like deep breathing, and then they, they practice those around events that make them anxious so that, you know, the memories never go away, but they can master the negative feelings about the memories so that they're able to function better in their lives. That's kind of the, the bread and butter of what good psychotherapy does with PTSD. And with children versus adults who suffer a trauma, is it um, is it more deeply rooted in a way with children because they're just so much more formative at that age? That's um, one of the th- things that might be some misinformation. We, we think, you know, children's brains are developing in the first six years of life, and we we speculate that whether that's more harmful if they experience trauma in their early years. And we just don't know for sure. I don't, I don't think it is because we see adults who have been traumatized by war and they are severely affected just as badly as anybody. So uh, I th- I, it's, it's, a, it's an intriguing narrative to think that maybe children are are more vulnerable, but uh, I think the research shows that all age groups are are probably equally vulnerable. Goodness, that is a a fair statement that uh, there's no way to really assess, I don't think, that, well, yours is worse than this one or it's not as bad as another. Uh, If we're suffering with it, it's bad. Right. Right. And, And here, though, focusing on on children, and there are so many traumas uh, that can occur. I, I don't know if it's because the the world is uh, is larger in a way, and we have just more access to information. It, it feels like there are just so many uh, negative things that have have gone on for children, aside from natural disasters, but just uh, you know witnessing trauma going on. Uh, around them, the accidents. You you talk about car accidents and children and what a trauma that is, and maybe we dismiss that too quickly. Well, yeah, here's another interesting piece of research. They've done a, a good uh, community survey of teens uh, and showed that by the age of 16 years, two-thirds of all youth will have experienced at least one life-threatening traumatic event. Two-thirds. So, I kind of look at that as kind of good news and bad news. You know, I mean, the good news is most people are resilient. You know, 70% of people who experience trauma do not develop PTSD. Humans are kind of built for trauma. You could think of it that way. Um, but the bad news, of course, is that there's so much trauma, and there's that 30% who, who are vulnerable for some reason um, to develop PTSD. And And all of that is just so 
such critical information for us to understand so that we can help those who are so vulnerable. And another way, like I, th- I think of how you mentioned something as the uh, with children witnessing domestic violence, certainly that's something to totally be aware of that if, you know, if there's going to be a dispute in the family, to do it in such a way that the children, uh, they may pick up the vibes, but to witness it, seeing it face on is, is the thing that is the trauma. Is that right? Right. That can be another one of those hard to detect things because if the child themselves were not injured, but they just saw their, their mother injured, that can cause PTSD. Then you, know, you can make the analogy that's like uh, some, a soldier in war who saw their friend next to them get shot and killed. The, a mother is the most important person in a child's life. And if they see their mother getting uh, hit, beaten, threatened, that can be a, that sudden moment of panic, of fearing for someone else's life. And we've, we've treated a lot of children, and there's stories in the book of, of children like that whose their PTSD was from, just from witnessing domestic violence. And so that is one of those things for, again, to be so aware of as to what we do have control over uh, in, in those sorts of situations to, you know, whatever ends up being the decision as to how to correct it, but, but at first at least to be aware of it. And then to have conversations with children, with youth, it's important, isn't it, to have them feel like they can talk about it? It is. Um, Children are always looking to adults on how to talk about things, whether it's okay to talk about something or not okay to talk about something. And that can kind of circle back to things like school shootings, too. If the parents look like they're nervous about talking about trauma, the children are going to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't be talking about trauma. Maybe that's something I shouldn't do that makes people nervous. And I've seen it so many times also where children will say, well, I don't tell my parent what I'm thinking and feeling and how scared I am because I don't want to upset my parents. And the parents are horrified because they think, you know, how can my child not tell me what's going on with them? Um, I'm trying to, you know, shield my own feelings. So parents can take the lead and be, you know, it, it can be tough to talk about trauma. It's a scary thing, but the best advice is just, I say, lay it out on the table, be straightforward and kind of businesslike, and, and ask their child, you know, what did they experience? How are they feeling? You know, admit that things are scary, even that the parent is scared to talk about it too, and that will help the child feel more comfortable that it's okay to talk about these things. Such wonderful, important advice for us, and I am just, again, so grateful, Dr. Skringa, that you have provided, written this book and provided it to us. They'll never be the same, A Parent's Guide to PTSD in Youth, because I think here we have a, a tool, really, to feel empowered. It's going to give us those important insights that maybe we're, we don't even know where to look to for resources. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope people feel the same way about it and, and get a lot of use out of the book. And, of course, they can find it at any of their favorite book sources, correct? Yeah, it should be at your local big bookstores. And, of course, it's available on Amazon.com. Excellent. So, again, I'm 
really grateful that you've done this writing. The research comes from an authority like yourself who really has uh, such a heart and a passion for helping children because uh, that was really the inspiration here to get it down in print, right? Exactly. Uh, I was hoping to to help more people uh, by spreading the word, and um, I hope people find it that way. Well, it certainly is written in layman's terms, which, again, I think was one of your desires, was so that it was easily readable by this audience, by the parents, by the teachers. Right. It's, it does have a lot of studies, but I also didn't pack too many studies in there. I was concerned about that. I tried to, there's a lot of stories and easy to, you know, understand the uh, scenarios of of what parents can do at the end of every chapter. In fact, there's a section of bullets for parents of this, you know, what parents can do and boil it down into the, the final nuts and bolts. Exactly. That's an excellent point. I was thinking that, too, as I was going through the book, that, oh, this is great that it recaps it. So it's really written in such a form that makes it easy for us to use and uh, just a critically important tool. So once again, Dr. Skaringa, I am just so grateful that you've done this work and that you've taken this time with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.